Good morning. I am uh, certainly glad to be here with you today. I'm glad that you're here and uh, I'm excited to get started on this series that we've been talking about for quite a while now. A series about salvation and about knowing whether or not we're right with God. A series that's going to take us through the book of Romans. And I want to encourage you right now to be present for as much of this series as you can because Jay Lloyd's coming in next week and he's going to pick up and Jay and I are going to alternate Sundays till we finish through the book of Romans. And uh, I do believe it will be very rewarding for you. I know it's been for me to do this study. I want to begin by asking you to consider a scenario with me. Imagine you're on an airplane, you're flying maybe across the ocean somewhere, or maybe you're flying just across the United States, and as you're flying, you get settled in and the flight takes off, and you get up in the air real good, and a stewardess comes by, and she's got a parachute. And she comes to you and she says, here, I I think you need to put this on. You say, why? Why? She said, well, we've done a lot of market research, we've had focus groups, and we have studied this topic from top to bottom, and we have discovered that people enjoy their flights more if they wear a parachute. Your seat's going to be more comfortable, the food is going to taste better, the movie, you're going to be able to see the movie better, you can hear it better, it's just going to be, the temperature will be better, your ears won't pop, it's just going to be a lot better flight if you'll wear this parachute. Would you put on the parachute? Let's just suppose she could convince you to put on that parachute. And you pull that thing on and you strap it all on. You sit down. You know what you're going to find out? The seat is not more comfortable with parachute on. And the food is still airplane food. It is not very good. And the movie is no better. And the temperature is not better. And your ears still pop. And not only that, if you're the only one on the plane wearing a parachute, you know what everybody else is doing? Look at that guy over there. You know? Hey, parachute man! What are you going to do? Well, before long, you're going to take off that parachute and throw it down and feel like you've been deceived, right? Let's change the scenario a little bit. You're on the same plane, same seat, you're up in the air, the stewardess comes by with the same stewardess, same parachute, and she says, hey... Excuse me, uh, we've had a problem in the cockpit and you need to put this on. The plane's going down in about 15 minutes. What are you going to do? I'm going to strap that baby on (laughs) as tight as it'll go. And I don't care that the seat's not comfortable. That doesn't matter to me. I don't care about the food and how it tastes. I don't care about what movie's showing or whether my ears are popping. I'm wearing a parachute. Why? Because plane's going down. My job in this first sermon in this series is to convince you that you're on a plane that's going down. That's my job. That's what Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 is about. And in this series that we're going to cover, Jay and I will cover all these different sections why you need this parachute. We're going to discover how the gospel happens and how you and I can be saved and exactly how this parachute will get you off of this plane. We're going to discover what it requires from you and I 
to wear this parachute. We're going to talk about who it's for and why that matters. And finally, we're going to talk about what it's going to look like when you jump out of that plane and you're floating down with your parachute. I hope you're encouraged about this. The theme of the book of Romans is this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the God spell or the good spell. It's what the word gospel comes from. It means the good news, the word that comes from God that's good. That's the power of God to save you and I. He says it's the power of God to salvation. Now, most of us, realistically, we have doubts and concerns and problems sometimes thinking about whether or not we're saved, whether or not we're right with God. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever thought, well, I hope I'm saved? Well, all of us have trouble when we look for our assurance to our power to obey the gospel of Christ. It's just like that plane's going down. If you don't have a parachute, how are you going to get saved? You may think, well, I'm like MacGyver and I'll make something out of my seat. You're not going to be saved. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. And all of the religion of mankind, the religions of the world, the Buddhism and Hinduism and and all the isms of the world, those are the power of man and they don't have any power to save the soul of people who are going to face an eternal judge. And brothers and sisters, you and I will face the eternal judge of God. He says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. The theme of Romans is the just shall live by faith. And I believe that means several things. One, it means that if you're just or justified, that's what just means, in the eyes of God, you got that way by faith. Your justice was made alive with faith or by faith. Secondly, people who are just, their life is directed by faith. Righteousness means a couple of things. Righteousness means being right with God, but it also in this context means the righteousness of God in forgiving man and allowing us into heaven. And we're going to talk about how you and I can be right with God because the righteousness of God means to be as right as God is. And the truth is, most of us are not as right as God. You know, we're seeking the title of righteousness. We want to be righteous. I want to be righteous, don't you? I dare say if you didn't want to be righteous, you wouldn't be here today, would you? You'd be at the golf course. Well, it's a little warm for that. But you'd be somewhere doing something else if you didn't care about being righteous. Well, the gospel, the good news, is this revealing or this pulling back of the covers of the righteousness of God. And we're going to study about and learn about the righteousness of God in this series. Now, the bad news, very simply summed up in these first three chapters, is this. Chapter 1, he's going to tell you and I why... Are condemned. Now, I would suspect that's everybody here today because if you're not Jewish in race, you're a Gentile. And I doubt we've got any Jewish people here this morning. 
Romans chapter 2, he's going to talk about why the Jews were condemned. And then Romans chapter 3, he's going to talk about law, faith, and justification and how the end result of the law of God is that all men alive are in a plane that's going to crash. Everybody alive, spiritually, is in a crashing plane. We're going to learn about what that means. Let's start in chapter 1 with the Gentiles. He starts, we're going to skip the introductory stuff and start in verse 18. If you want to grab your Bibles, the Scriptures are going to be up here, but you may want to follow along in your Bible. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Isn't it interesting that in a story, a book about the gospel, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the good news of God, he starts, the very first thing he starts with, is wrath. The wrath of God. You know what wrath is? If you're a parent, you know what wrath is, don't you? Sometimes you have been really mad. I mean, just real angry. That's wrath. And he says, in explaining to you the gospel, I want to start by talking to you about the anger of God. I want to explain to you, I want to help you understand this wrath of God that's revealed from heaven. And God's wrath is revealed in five ways here in Romans chapter 1. And we want to look at these five things. It begins with the revealing of God's love. Isn't that interesting? That God begins to reveal the good news with His wrath, and He begins to reveal His wrath with His love. Isn't that interesting? Look at this, 19 and 20. It says, "...because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Now, the they here is Gentiles. Okay? And what he says here is this... He says that what's known of God, what's known of God is manifest. Manifest means clearly seen. And how did God show it to them? Since the creation of the world, His attributes are clearly seen by the things that He made. Have you ever been outside on a really dark night when you weren't in Dallas, you weren't in Houston, you weren't in some big city, and seen the stars? David said the handiwork of God is declared in the stars and the heavens. This passage here says that is what we call the light of creation. Every person alive has this light from God. The light of creation. We've got a couple of families here expecting babies. Magical in a good sense. Just the birth of a child into this world. That's the light of God. And to see the birth of a child or the universe and the stars or a tree in the forest, the Bible says that clearly shows us some things about God. It clearly shows the world some things about God. When seeing God's creation, you and I should stop and kneel and worship and be troubled by our own sin. That's what mankind should do. 
when we see something as grand and majestic as this creation. But instead, what the Gentiles did, and that's all mankind other than the Jews, the Gentiles rejected that wisdom of God. The Gentiles rejected that light that they were given. And before we go on, I want to notice this. Notice he says they are without excuse. I might go out and look at a starry sky or a tree in the forest and go, well, you know, maybe somebody would see God in that and maybe they wouldn't. God said, people who've seen these are without excuse. That's what God said. His judgment is that the light of creation is sufficient for any man to know that there's a God. Now, there's a lot of specific details about God it doesn't reveal. But any man can know when they look at and contemplate the heavens and the things that God's created that there is a God. That's what he says. And he says people who reject that are without excuse. He goes ahead and he says that they did reject that in verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. They wanted to reject Him. They didn't accept God. They knew about God. Have you ever thought about this? When, when Noah stepped off the ark, that every human being alive on the face of the earth worshipped God? Think about that. Everybody did. There's almost a billion Muslims today. How did that happen? You know how that happened? People rejected God. You've read the story in the Tower of Babel. How people rejected God and they were going to build this tower and God confused their languages. They were rejected because they rejected God. And look what he goes ahead to say. When somebody rejects this revealing of God's love because God shows all mankind His existence, they reject that. That's followed by replacing God with idols. It says they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. He says when people reject the real God, you know what they're going to do? They're going to end up worshiping something else. There is no inherently atheistic society anywhere in the world that doesn't exist. Because man knows there's something out there. And so instead of worshiping the real God of the universe, people converted and they worship men or birds or four-footed animals. Bugs. Did you know Egypt worshipped bugs? (laughs) That's the degree to which it will go. They will absolutely end up worshipping bugs. And he says the result of that ultimately is that reprobation will be produced. Look at this passage. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, exchanged the natural use for what is against nature, committing what is shameful, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Now what he's talking about here, he calls reprobation or debased. This is a description in this passage of homosexuality. And it's just a fact that every society, major society that collapses, collapses right after it as a society wholesale accepts this perversion as being right. You know, when you walk away from God, you walk away from the light that God says 
the, the light that God gives. And you begin to replace that with other things, with other beliefs, with other worshiping. There's no place to stop. And the ultimate end result of that is somebody, when you choose a path, you choose the destination of that path. Our culture has chosen a path and the end result will be the destination that we end up at. That's true in all of our lives. I might go to a bar and get drunk. And I might go get in my car and go out and drive and run over somebody and kill a family. And I would stand up and go, but I didn't mean to kill anybody. But I did. I didn't mean to kill them, but I chose those deaths when I chose to go to the bar and start drinking. You see, when you choose a path, you choose the destination of that path. You choose wherever that path is going to lead you. And that's what's happened with the Gentiles. So they rejected God and they chose a different path. And when you choose a different path, a path of paganism, a path of humanism, a path of any other ism that leads us away from serving and worshiping the true God, the ultimate end result is what we're seeing in our culture today. You know, I heard just this week that a U.S. Supreme Court justice was performing a wedding for two men this week. You believe that? That's where our culture's gone. The Bible talks a lot about this and, and He calls it total depravity. He calls it reprobation. And what reprobation is, is reprobation is somebody that says evil is good and good is evil. It's people who do evil for the sake of evil. This is a list of all these sins here in Romans 1, 29-31. The one I want to point out to your attention is this, disobedient. It says disobedient to parents. You think that's so bad? I mean, he gives a list of... There's haters of God in this list. I mean, there's some terrible stuff here. Disobedient to parents. Do you think this is that bad? You know, when he talks about disobedient to parents here, he's not talking about the kid that mom says, it's time for you to go to bed, and he sits there in front of his Xbox until dad comes in with his daddy voice and says, son, your mother said go to bed. That's not the kind of disobedience he's talking about. He's talking about somebody who, when mom says go to bed, he is defiant and rebellious in his spirit. This is somebody who will not be persuaded by their parents to do what's right. You know, sometimes kids can get to that level. Kids can get to that degree. They can get to the point that there's nothing mom and dad can do to change the direction of the child. And you know when that happens, you know all you can do? Mom a sack of groceries, fill a car with gas and say, you know, God be with you. I hope you repent. Let them go. And that's what God does. Three times through this passage, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. He still gives the light of creation. He still gives them light, but He gives up. He gives them up to do the debased things that are in there. And I want you to look at His judgment. It says, "...who knowing the righteous judgment..." And that term, righteous judgment, is an official judicial decision. It's when the judge bangs the gavel and says, "...guilty or innocent or whatever he says when he bangs that gavel." It's the official judicial uh, judgment. It's the passing of a sentence 
I was called to jury duty a while back. And the, it was a sentencing jury. The guy had already been found guilty. He robbed a convenience store. And he kidnapped the 17-year-old kid that was working in the convenience store and tortured him for three days until the kid died. And he was found guilty of that. And they brought me with a bunch of other people in and wanted to talk to us about being jurors. And they asked me, they said, Mr. McCorkle, could you imagine a situation that would give you compassion on somebody in this, in this case that uh, might allow you to not give them the death penalty? And I said... No, sir. <laughs> I don't think so. I can't imagine, I can't conceive a situation that I would say, okay, well, maybe he did torture this guy for three days and then kill him, but I can understand why he'd do that. I can't imagine one of those. And the lawyer said, okay, you're free to go. <laughs> they weren't interested in me being on that judge or that jury. But you see, God passes an official judicial judgment. And he says, we know what that judgment is. And you know what that judgment is? It's right there in the very next verse. He says, those who practice such things are deserving of death. Now that's not my judgment. I might know and like these people. They may be friends of mine. But God's judgment, God's official judgment, is people who commit sin are worthy of death. Now this brings us to a couple of common questions that come up when you talk about righteousness. One is, well, what about somebody who never heard the gospel? What about somebody who's never been taught about Jesus Christ? And the truth of the matter is that by rejecting the light that you've already got, you're guilty before God for rejecting the light that He's given you, whatever light that is. He goes ahead and answers another question here, and that is, well, what about sincere people in other religions? I mean, there are sincere Hindus and sincere Buddhists and sincere uh, Taoists and sincere pagans. I guess they're sincere pagans. I don't know if they're sincere pagans or not. But you know, the religions that are created by cultures who have rejected God are no better than the cultures that created those religions. Sincerity in a false religion does not excuse someone from the judgment of God. Just because my ancestors rejected God, if I continue that rejection, even though my rejection may be sincere, I still stand before God as a rejecter of God. So he talks about the Gentiles. They've rejected God. They've all turned aside. They've all done what they knew wasn't right. He talks now about the Jews. And the Jews have a standard of judgment. He talks about them being judged according to truth. He says, the judgment of God is according to truth. Now, do you know what that means? That means God's not going to judge you by anybody else. It means when you stand before judgment, He's not going to say, well, you know what? You're better than Hitler was. <laughs> I'll give you that. He's not going to judge you by Hitler. He's not going to judge you by Osama bin Laden. He's not going to judge you by the guy that lives next door. He's going to judge you by the standard of His truth that never changes. He goes ahead and says, Do you think this, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Knowing the law of God doesn't help anybody. Knowing the law of God doesn't change anything. You see these Jews, as they're reading chapter 1, they're going, you go, Paul! You tell those old sorry Gentiles how no good they are. 
That's what he thought. And Paul says, Jews, you're not any better than they are. You know the law. You know what they're doing is wicked and evil and debased. And you reject that and you condemn that rightly. But you see, you're not obeying the law that you have. He says you are treasuring up for yourself wrath. That word treasuring up is a banker's term and it means it's growing. The wrath is growing. You know who this is? You all recognize that? That's Harriet Olson from Little House on the Prairie. If you've ever watched Little House on the Prairie, Harriet Olson was a Jew (laughs) in this sense. She wasn't literally a Jew, but she was a judgmental, harsh woman. She knew the rules and she would apply them without any variation to everybody else and she would do exactly the same thing that she was criticizing them for doing. Just in a different way. So many of the shows were about that. It's not hard to be Harriet Olson, is it? I mean, we can be pretty critical of other people. We know what's right. We understand the law of God. Well, we know that... You know, we've studied 1 Corinthians 14. We know whatever word in there. All the Greek words, we understand that. And, and we can get pretty Harriet Olson on people pretty quick. That's what the Jews were in this context. They knew the rules, but they weren't doing it. And in the next few verses, look at what God says. He will render to each one, to every soul of man, to everyone, Jew and Gentile. They're without, God is without partiality. There is no partiality in God, this passage says. And you know what that word, that phrase, without partiality, means? Literally, it's without a face. That's kind of strange, isn't it? without a face. Do you know what that means? That means when Barack Obama stands before God on the day of judgment, he's not going to have any more face with God than an aborted child that never took one breath in this world. That means it doesn't matter who you are. Your face means nothing to God. He's not going to cut you any kind of slack, any kind of benefit because of who you are. Nobody. Do you remember uh, Nadab and Abihu? They were the children of Aaron, the high priest. These guys could say, Uncle Moses. Think about that. You know what God did to them when they sinned? Burn them up just like that. Doesn't matter to God who you are. Doesn't matter to God who I am. God shows no partiality to anyone else. No partiality at all. So then he goes ahead and he says there's a standard of judgment here. He says eternal life, glory, honor, and peace to those who in patient continuance do good seeking glory, honor, and immortality. He said, but there's indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish to those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, who obey unrighteousness and do evil. Now, which side of that do you want to stand under? Well, let's just sign me up over here. I'm going to stand right over here under this side. This is where I want. I want eternal life, glory, honor, and peace. You see, there's a problem though. I haven't had patient continuance in doing good. 
We may have tried. But sometimes I get impatient. Sometimes I don't continue. And sometimes I don't do good. I don't always seek honor and glory and immortality. Sometimes I seek dishonor. Sometimes I seek shame. Sometimes I seek not immortality, but immorality. And if that's true, I can't have that without that. Well, I don't want this. I don't want to be standing under indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish. Do you? Anybody want that? No? It's okay to shake your head. I don't want that. But you know what? I have been self-seeking. Have you ever gotten angry when you didn't get your way about something? (laughs) Yancey said no, he's never done that. (laughs) You ever gotten angry when you didn't get your way? I have. I've gotten angry. In fact, I'm pretty sure every one of you has gotten angry when you didn't get your way. Self-seeking. Do not obey the truth. You see the problem that we run into? Knowing the Jews knew the law of God, and us knowing the law of God doesn't do us any good if we don't do the law of God. And that was the problem the Jews had. Now listen, I think it's fine and dandy if you can open your Bible and you can show in in Scripture the truth and you can whip a premillennialist. I think that's great. There's nothing wrong with being able to teach the doctrines of the Bible. But if you can't live right, what good does that do? What benefit is there in knowing if you're not going to be doing? Heard some young people in the church one time talking about a uh, trip. One of them's class or some class they were in was going to go to Europe. And they had the opportunity to go travel for two or three weeks in Europe. The problem was it was going to be over a weekend and this person was going to have to miss church. And so this person was talking to another young person in the church about whether or not they ought to go on this trip to Europe because they'd have to miss church and they didn't want to miss church. And the other young person said, Well, where in the Bible does it say you can miss church to go on a trip to Europe? I thought, well, that's a little harsh. And then the young person said this, I tell you what, I only miss church when I'm sick. And my first thought was, and where in the Bible does it say you can miss church when you're sick? (laughs) You see, we can know stuff... But we apply those rules differently, and that's what the Jews did. They knew the law of God, but they'd apply those rules differently to me than I would to somebody else. And what they end up doing is being hypocrites and being condemned by God. You see, they had the light of hearing. Hearing the law of God is not the same as doing the law of God. And brothers and sisters, we need to know that. The judgment of the Gentiles. This gives a a little bit of a problem. Now Paul set up this problem because he said God condemns the Jews because they don't obey the law and the law condemns them. But he's just said the Gentiles weren't under law. So, well, how can you condemn Gentiles? If the Jews are condemned because they broke the law, how can the Gentiles be condemned? Because they didn't have the law of God, right? 
How are you going to condemn the Gentiles? Well, his answer is this. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness in between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men. Look at the, these four words. He said, by nature, their hearts, their conscience, and their thoughts. Now the word law, you noticed, was in there over and over and over. The law. The law that the Gentiles were under is this. It's the law of their heart. God has put in every man a basic knowledge of good and evil. You don't inherit the sin of, or the guilt of Adam and Eve's sin, but you do inherit the knowledge of good and evil from Adam and Eve. And as a result, every one of us has done things that are wrong. Imagine yourself standing before the judgment seat of God, and God says, Have you been righteous? And the prosecution stands up, which is your conscience, and says, well, there were 817 times that he stole something, took something that wasn't his. And you go, well, I, yeah, yeah, I know I messed up. And the conscience prosecution still says, and there were 4,832,921 times that he would have stolen something if he could have got away with it. He's guilty. Your conscience has condemned you. And the judge says, well, did you ever do anything right? And your conscience is going to jump up on the other side to justify you and go, oh yeah, but there were 17 times he could have stole something, could have got away with it, and he didn't. So you see, we all have this conscience in us that says, yes, you're guilty, or no, you're not, tears you down or builds you up based on whether you're guilty or not, and all the Gentiles are in that case. And he says, God will judge the secrets of men based on that. All the secrets of men. See, the Gentiles knew what was wrong, and they did it anyway. Does that sound familiar to anybody here? Have you ever done something you knew was wrong when you did it, and you did it anyway? I have. We all have. God says when you do that, you're guilty. When you do that, your secrets will be judged. You know, we've all got sins that people know about and we've all got secrets, don't we? You know, if you all knew my secrets, you probably wouldn't be here today. And if we all knew your secrets, we probably wouldn't let you in. (laughs) I mean, the truth is, we've all got secrets and God's going to judge all of those secrets by His standard, His law. So back to the Jews, he says, Indeed, you're called a Jew and rest on the law. You make your boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident you're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. You see how law is all through that? They put their confidence in the law. The problem they had is this. If you trust the law to save you and then you break the law, you're sunk. If you say, I'm saved by the law and then you don't do what the law says, you're in trouble. You're sunk. And look at this. Every person... He goes ahead in this passage and talks about circumcision. The Jews were very proud of the fact that they were a circumcised people. Well, if you walk by a Semitic person, you know, they all look kind of the same. You really can't tell if they're a descendant of, of Isaac or a descendant of Esau or Ishmael. Or, you can't really tell outwardly. But they knew because they had this covenant of circumcision and that made them believe that they were better. They were a part of the covenant. And they would always 
tell you, if you read the Gospels, you'll hear over and over, well, we're the children of Abraham. We're the children of Abraham. We're the children of Abraham. And they believe because they had the blood of Abraham in their veins, they somehow had some special benefit with God. In fact, it was a common belief of the day that Abraham sat at the gates of hell and any Jew that was headed that way, he stopped them and sent them off to heaven. They believed that they were right because they had the blood of Abraham in their veins. And Paul says, in God's eyes, that's not right. You see, what makes you a child of Abraham to God, what makes you a real Jew to God, is having the faith of Abraham in your heart, not the blood of Abraham in your veins. And God would distinguish that way. So is the Jew guilty? Have you done stuff you knew was wrong? And you did it anyway, yes. Is the Gentile guilty? Have you done stuff you knew was wrong and did it anyway? Yes. You see, we're all guilty before God. Everyone stands that way. Now, Paul addresses three questions here that come up. And he says, so is there any advantage in being a Jew? Because this was an objection the Jews raised. If we're all in the same boat, what's the advantage of being a Jew? And he said, oh, you've got a great advantage. You had the Bible. You had the Word of God. The next question is this. Well, if somebody rejects the Bible, the Word from God, is God just in condemning them? Yes, He's just in condemning them. The fact that they're a child of Abraham doesn't change the fact that they stand before God as a rejecter of His Word and His law. And the last question he addresses, why could God, can God be glorified in my judgment? Now, that's the way I worded it. The issue was this. If my wickedness just shows how great God is... Because it does. The more ugly and wicked I am, the greater God looks compared to me, right? If my wickedness just shows how great God is, how can He condemn me for showing Him to be great? You see the twisted logic that they had? And he says, yes, He can condemn anyone. God has the right to do that. And He calls a surprise witness to the stand in this. And that surprise witness is God. He says this, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. And you can remember these things with the words, the word rust or the letters. There's none righteous, none understand, none seek God. Everyone has turned aside. That's God's judgment about the human race. That's what God says about you and me, every one of us. Now, back to our analogy. You know what that is? Your plane's going down. That's what that is. You're not righteous. You don't understand. You don't seek God. You've turned aside. That's God's righteous judgment about all mankind. He goes ahead and describes it this way. Their throat's an open tomb. With their tongues they practice deceit. The poison asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction, misery in their ways. The way of peace they've not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, he wraps up the whole man. Your tongue, your mouth, your eyes, your feet, the whole man. You're all wicked because you've used every part of your body for wickedness. Everybody has. When you use every part of your body for wickedness, you're wholly wicked. And that's His judgment of mankind. So, now we know in verse 19 of chapter 3, as we're getting to the end of the lesson here, He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. He says, The purpose of the law was that every mouth might be stopped. I know 
you may be thinking, well, yeah, I've done some bad stuff, but I haven't done a lot of really bad stuff. Have you ever stolen anything? Taken anything that wasn't yours? Ever? Anything at all that wasn't yours? And I say, well, I wouldn't take a gun down to the 7-Eleven and stick it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, did you ever take anything that didn't belong to you? Somebody give you too much change at the store and you just stick it in your pocket and walk out and don't, don't take it back to them. You ever done that? Maybe not that, but you've taken something that wasn't yours, haven't you? At some point in your life. Have you ever told a lie? God said, thou shalt not bear false witness. You ever said anything that wasn't exactly true? A while back, we were talking at the house. In our house, sometimes any of us tend to exaggerate a little bit. You know, if it's a 45-minute drive and I want to go, I'll say, well, it's only half an hour. <laughs> you know, And if I don't want to go, i say, oh, it's an hour. <laughs> you know, that's just... Have you ever exaggerated half-truths, white lies? Told something that wasn't exactly... Let somebody believe something that you knew wasn't right and you just let it go. You've done that, haven't you? Have you ever committed adultery? Not me. I've never done that. You know, the way Jesus said it was this. If you look on a woman to lust after, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. Ever done that? Now let me ask you a question. Your own heart, has it condemned you in the things we've talked about? By your own admission of your own heart, you stand before God as a lying, thieving adulterer. Is God going to say you're guilty or is He going to say you're innocent? What's He going to say? Is the law going to say you're guilty? Or is the law going to say you're innocent? Well, you know the answer to that. The answer to that is what he says in the next line, that all the world may become guilty before God. It shuts everybody's mouth. It's what the law of God does. It, can, it wraps us all up before God as guilty. He says this, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the deeds of the law, nobody. What the law does is the law serves one function and one function alone. And that's to say, this guy right there, which is you, is guilty or innocent. That's all the law does. It says you're guilty or you're innocent. You might say, well, I've never done bad, big bad stuff. I hope not. And I hope you never do. But that's why in the book of James, James said this, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and offend in one point, he is guilty of all. He says if you do everything God wants you to do except one thing, you're guilty of all. That's a picture or drawing of a guy hanging from a chain. The law of God is like a chain. Let me ask you this. How many of those links have to break before that guy's going to fall? That's right. One link breaks and the guy falls. It's the way the law of God is. You break one law one time and you're a lawbreaker. One law one time and you're guilty. You're not innocent. And the only thing the law has to say about you is you are guilty. 
your plane is going to crash. The wages of sin is death. God is a God who Scripture says will by no means clear the guilty. Now here's the problem that Jay is going to talk about next week and give us the solution to. But that problem is this. There's never been a politician who ran on this platform. If you elect me, I'm going to overturn the convictions of all the criminals in all the prisons and I'm going to say instead of guilty, they're innocent and I'm going to let them go. You know why politicians don't say that? You'd never get elected. (laughs) Because that's not justice, is it? That's a travesty of justice. That's a horrible judge. Can you imagine a judge who knew somebody was guilty? Everybody knew they were guilty. You had a film, a video of them doing the crime and the judge says, I know you're guilty, but I'm going to say you're innocent. Get out of here, boy. Would that be a fair judge? Would that be a just judge? No. Then how can the Almighty God be just and forgive people like you and I who are unjust and consider us to be righteous. How can God be just and justify people who are unjust? Because it's not right and it's not fair just to let us go. That's the problem the book of Romans deals with. And I want you to know, I hope you're here next week to hear, hear Jay's talk on this. When we first got together to talk about this, this series, I told him, I don't want the first talk. It's a downer. And I, but he ended up getting the second one. I got the first one anyway. But you know, he gives you the answer to this question. Paul does. And it begins in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. And I want to encourage you this week... I want you to open your Bibles and read Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through the end of Romans chapter 5. Think about that, meditate on that, because that's what Jay's going to preach about next week. This afternoon, what we're going to do is we're going to jump back a little bit in Romans chapter 3 and we're going to talk about how reprobation develops, the development of reprobation, and how a person can go from committing a simple sin to being somebody who believes evil is good and good is evil. Because that process is laid out in the book of Romans and all of us are in danger of that at some point. But I want to close the lesson here by telling you this. Your plane is going to crash spiritually. You're not going to get by with it. It's not going to be okay. And I want to tell you, if you're not right with God today, if you're not righteous, you need Jesus. Jesus is your parachute. Jesus is your only chance. You're not going to get good enough. You're not going to keep the rules good enough. You need Jesus Christ. He is a solution to the problem. We're going to talk about why and how He is that solution as we go along. But the last thing I want to say is this. If you need the prayers of the church or maybe you, you need Jesus and you don't have Him today, you don't have to leave today without Christ. The church here will be happy to pray with you and for you or you can be baptized into Christ today. You can have the right relationship with God and know the power of the Gospel of Christ that Jesus will take you out of that crashing plane spiritually and set you spiritually safely 
in eternal heaven. He will do that if you'll turn to Him. If there's any way we can assist you, please come to the front while we stand and sing.